This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Mike Missanelli podcast, episode number 102. Doing it Tuesday. August 15th, and, uh, you know, a mundane summer has certainly uh, decided to pick up a little bit. Now, we really had planned to go full bore Philadelphia Eagles today, and we'll get to them in a second, but because, um, you know, they've had a preseason game, finally we could talk about it, and they're having a joint practice now with the Browns. Uh, and this podcast, of course, is brought to us by the great people at Bet Rivers and the Bet Rivers Sports Network. Jimmy Harden has uh, opened up another can of worms here, and there's so many worms to take out of this can. So uh, let's go with uh, the issue. And the issue, the current issue, is that he is at some kind of Adidas event in China, and uh, he's got the microphone, and he's holding court, and uh, he says, uh, all right, let, well, let's, let's play exactly what he said. is a liar. And I will never be a part of an organization that he's part of. Let me say that again. Daryl Morey is a liar, and I will never be a part of an organization that he's a part of. All right. So, so basically, he calls Daryl Morey, his boss, a liar. And he says he will never play for any organization that he is a part of. Um, he's angry. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I had a boss that lied to me too, and I was equally as angry. But but let's see now where this puts James Harden, right? So so the the first of all, like he he apparently was talking to some kind of a camp there. And uh as far as I know, it was in China. Were his words being translated to the Chinese people that were there? Like, did they actually know what he was trying to say? I know, like, anybody on social media, and it's going to get back to all of us what he said, but that was the first thing I thought about it. Do they really understand what he's saying here? There was kind of a murmur in the crowd, I guess, from the American-speaking people that were there. Uh, but so, so here's the thing. The Sixers had released a couple of days earlier a statement saying that they are no longer exploring a trade for James Harden. Now, that's BS because you just you, – you, to say that doesn't mean you would turn down a trade because a trade could come down the road and you're not going to hold Fort and say, all right, no, 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 we're not going to trade now because we announced it. No, 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 you're still going to try to make, make some kind of a trade. The reason why you say something like that is to prepare the other side – for their contingency. Like, you know, we're prepared not to make a trade, so you're going to have to deal with this, and now the ball's in your court, and you're going to have to decide that the player sit out, and if you sit out, you're not going to help yourself. So they make that kind of a statement. Now, a Harden, that was the trigger. But the trig, the bigger trigger goes back in time with the Maury situation. So let's go back in time with it. Maury signed him last year to a contract that was about $15 million less. And Harden was on board because with that extra money, they were able to sign a couple guys he wanted to sign. P.J. Tucker, Daniel House. All right? So at that point, what was the promise made to James Harden? Not that any kind of promise would be legally binding, but what was the promise? Now, if Maury said to him, Sign this contract for us so we could sign these two guys that you want. And we will sign you to a max the following year. If Maury said that, he's wrong. And it's sinister to do something like that. I don't think Maury is dumb enough to say something like that. I think Maury is slick enough to say, James, do this for us and we'll take care of you the following year. Now, what does take care of you mean? Take care of you is relevant. It's all relevant, right? So 
Maury says, okay, take care. I, I don't mean Max because I know, and you should know, that you are not a Max player anymore. In addition to that, your performance at the end of the year would not indicate uh, a value higher than what we put on it. So I'm sure Maury's idea of we'll take care of you was a shorter-term contract, maybe a three-year contract with the third year being a player option, at just maybe a little more than $35 million that they paid him the year before, or maybe the same. I, I don't know. There had to be a raise in there somewhere. That's what I think Maury's idea was. Harden's idea in hearing the words was, okay, he's going to take care of me, he's going to give me the max. Now, this is the difference between a player who does not understand the realism of his value. James Harden obviously is a narcissistic NBA basketball player who still thinks he's a great player. Great players have a really difficult time looking at themselves in the mirror saying, I am a lesser player now. They think that they deserve the max. And they think they deserve it based on, I'm still a great player, but also look what I've done in this league. That's why I deserve the max. Management's looking at it like, no, we have to build a team. If we give you the max, we hamstring ourselves to actually build a team. So I know there's a lot of people that are blaming Daryl Morey here. And I have to ask you this question. Is Daryl Morey's loyalties more to one player named James Harden or to the 76ers in building a team that could win something? It's one thing to look at Maury and say, well, he really took, uh, he took Harden down the river there. It's the other thing to say, he's not more, he can't be more loyal to Harden than he that's, can be to the 76ers. So, so that's the, the way I look at it here. Um, it, here's, the, here's the bottom line here. Um, the Sixers still hold the cards. And I don't know what's going to happen here, but when you have this kind of destruction it, 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 nothing good can happen to it. And and the Sixers are not going to win anything next year, whether Harden comes back or not. Because if Harden comes back, you know exactly what's going to happen. He's not the type of player that's going to say, okay, I was wrong. I'm just going to play now. He, he's so dug in now that anything that he does to come back to the Sixers makes him look like a sellout. And the worst thing that a player of that ilk can look, can look at, at is to be a sellout. He's not going to kowtow to, to the machine in this situation. He's James Harden, and he's not going to limp back in like he's some kind of servant to the Philadelphia 76ers. So he's going to be dug in. There is this, no, first of all, in contract law, if you don't perform the contract, you don't get paid, and the contract doesn't toll. But in addition to that, in the CBA, there is a provision that says if you don't play, if you have a 30-day gap, and when you're supposed to play, when you're not, you, the, the contract does not toll, and, and you're still property of Philadelphia 76ers. Now, technically, he can really mess with the Sixers and show up and then take the next 29 days off. Right? He could possibly do that. And he's sinister enough to do that. He could also show up overweight. He can also show up and play with, with no zeal at all and face the wrath of the fans, which he never cared about anyway. So, Or he can hold out. And if he holds out, he's got nothing to gain because he's not performing the contract and he's not doing himself any favor. At that point, it could turn into a Ben Simmons situation where he's out, the Sixers proceed to, to go along and play the season, and, and they, they still work a trade, and maybe by February, some team sees James Harden as palatable, and that's when they make the deal, and that's when they get the best deal because that's what they did with Ben Simmons. And I'm sure Maury is not going to just give him away here. He is willing to risk the discord about this situation. Why? Here's what Daryl Morey knows that the fans may not know. The Sixers aren't going to win anything next year. The Sixers aren't as good. They're not with Harden as good as Boston, Milwaukee, and maybe Miami. Without a player commensurate to Harden's talents, they're not good either. So, the Sixers know in the front office we're not going to win anyway, and we're asking our fans to just go along with a year where maybe they think that some kind of Nick Nurse magic can make us win, but we know we're not going to win. So we're playing this as a gap year, and after all this is done, we got all this money because we got Tobias off the books, we got Harden off the books. They're basically throwing it in the fans' face. Now, 
I hate that kind of mentality. I really do. Where clandestinely they're t- they're taking their fans for a ride, a bad ride that's going to lead to nowhere, and that unsettles me. But then I look at the situation. And I go, what could possibly be the solution that that gets this situation through it and it makes the Sixers a contender? None. With Harden, they're not a contender. Without them, they're not a contender. With them making a bad deal, they're not a contender. So, Sixer fans, I hate to break the news to you, but here's the news. Focus on the Phillies trying to get to the World Series and focus on the Eagles trying to get to the Super Bowl and then just try to get to another goddamn winner of no winning with the Sixers and the Flyers. Let's bring producer Darren in here. Darren, you just heard what I had to say. Your opinion. Well, see, with look, Maury's gotten killed since yesterday, rightfully so. But, you know, I'm so sick. Harden is the most destructive player in league history. He has done this virtually every place he's been, with every organization. It, it is staggering to me that he would make those comments out loud, knowing full well there are a hundred camera phones on him. That was planned from what uh, has been reported. His agent advised him not to do it. It was a horrible move. This organization over the last 10 years is nothing shy of a complete and utter dumpster fire. They're a mess from the or- from the owner down. They are a mess. Now you got Embiid scrubbing his social media sites. No Philly, no Sixers. Uh, you know, it's just. It never ends with this goddamn organization. It never ends. And, and the owner... By the way, what the hell is Nick Nurse thinking today? Well, he's going to have to deal with all this. The owner, interestingly <laughs> enough, could, 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 could care less because he's now, he's now obsessed with his, uh, his boyhood football team that he just bought, right? So he's not going to come in here and do anything. Uh, Harden predicted this. Uh, Harden's tweet weeks before the China thing was to get ready for things to be uncomfortable. So this is his first salvo. But here's the thing. Harden has not said that Maury promised him a max, which leads me to believe that Maury didn't promise him a max because Maury's not stupid enough to promise him a max. He knew the extent of where his career was at that point. I'm quite sure he said, we'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. You're my guy. That meant maybe a three-year deal with a player option. That meant certainly not max money. And Harden was under the impression, because of his, uh, his relationship with Maury, that Maury was just going to give up the max. And I go, and people that say, they go, oh, yeah, he lied to him. He, yeah, well, maybe he, he didn't lie to him. Maybe he, he, was, uh, uh, you know, he, he misled him a little bit. But Maury has to build a team. He just can't give out candy money because he's James I, I Harden. The other thing he might have promised him was because it's it's been widely known, I guess, known enough that he wants to go play for the Clippers. Maybe he said, I'll get you out there. Maybe he said, you know, opt in. I'll get you to the Clippers. And then he and then when he called, because you remember, Harden hasn't said this, didn't say this until the Sixers came out publicly and said trade talks are off. We're not moving. them." I think Harden up to that point thought he was promised or told he was getting moved to L.A. where he wanted to be. Because all these guys just want to go where they want to be. But here's the thing. It's one thing to say, we'll try to move you to L.A. It's the other thing is we're not going to give you to L.A. We can't give you to L.A. Do you understand the business of basketball, James, that we have to also make a good deal for us? I mean, that's the thing. Where the, Harden is totally out of his mind. Uh, and, and maybe Maury did mislead him. But the, but the misleading was just a part of doing business in the NBA to protect your own organization. So, I, I, again, the, the Sixers are a mess this year. Nothing really is going to get resolved to the point where we're going to open a season and think they're a contender. And it's, it's a shame, but this is a gap year. Get used to it. And you're not going to have a lot of cap space after next year, and it's not going to be Embiid moving as much as he scrubbed his Instagram and acted like a baby now over this whole thing. So it's, it's almost laughable. All right, so that's our Sixers chapter today, and we'll continue to talk about this because, you know, this is a fluid situation, so something may happen by Thursday when we come on and do our next podcast. In- and we do have Pompey on Thursday. Yeah, we'll so take Keith, Keith Pompey on Thursday to explain it because he's covering it. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let's, uh, let's uh, focus on our Philadelphia Eagles. 
It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, let's go deeper into these Philadelphia Eagles. It's a really tough time to read the Eagles. We know they're good. There's a couple positions that we're looking at. We just had kind of a mundane preseason game. We've got to practice with the Browns, all that kind of stuff. But this won't percolate until they actually play a game. But let's get some insights on what they look like right now from the man who covers the Eagles, been covering them for a while now, for ESPN and ESPN.com. He's the great Tim McManus joining us. Hello, Timmy. Mike. It's good to be with you, man. Good to see you. What's happening? Great to see you. And uh, so, listen, I know I'm always going to get a straight scoop from you. And it, 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 there, it's, it's funny when you cover a team, there are various stages that are more exciting than others. We know this is a good team. So the storylines aren't plentiful. Uh, so we just, we're on a kind of a, a wait and see system until they actually, what I think, play a game. I don't know how much we're even going to learn in preseason, but what, give me your assessment of what they look like right now. Are, are they, in your mind right now, uh, a championship caliber team? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, when you look at especially the rest of the NFC, I don't know that anybody got appreciably better. All of the quarterback play, like the quality quarterback play outside of Jalen Hurts and I don't know even where you go. You know, there's not too many after that in the NFC. When you can put all those factors in, Mike, yeah, I would say that they're in really good position uh, to to get back to the dance. It's not an easy thing to do. The stat that I throw out all the time is that the last NFC team that went to the Super Bowl and then got back there and lost and then got back there the next year was the 1974 Vikings. So it's not something that's easy to do. These guys are going to have to kind of mentally, you know, ramp back up. But the offense looks dynamite, and the defense is a work in progress. Assuming they catch up, then, uh, yeah, they're in a really good position. You know, it's funny, that, that concept you just mentioned about uh, trying to get back there again, I, it always seemed to me that if you lose a Super Bowl, you have tremendous motivation to, to, to get back there. And uh, I know Sirianni pushes that pedal all the time. So like, give me the, the mental dynamic of that whole thing and how they sit with that right now. Yeah, so I think it's kind of a – sort of a tricky thing to navigate as a head coach because you don't want to dwell on it, uh, but you also want to use it. It's right there and impossible to ignore, but you don't get back there unless the focus is like laser on, on the here and now. And so that was kind of what Sirianni was presented with at the start of the off season. The way that he chose to do it is the first time he got in front of the players in the auditorium at the Novacare complex. He had a giant picture behind him of his players walking off the field in Arizona with the Chiefs confetti falling on their head. So that's how he set the tone. Uh, but at the same out of the at the same moment, he's like, but you can't really I want you to use that as motivation, but you can't really think about it. You have to think about what's going on now. And so I think that's sort of part of it. Is it's just a big mental game. Uh, you you invest so much physically and emotionally into getting to that moment and then you come up empty. And then you got to do the climb all over again. Uh, you know, they're fortunate that they have a, a quarterback that's kind of, you know, wired and keeping it the right way and keeping his guys, um, you know, sharp. So that that helps. But it's it's not an easy thing to, to overcome. Uh, Timmy, as you come into the season covering this team, uh, I, I was curious to know what your approach would be. Now, we, we know that they're good on paper. They're good. And it looks like they're the be- on paper, the best team in the NFC. Uh, but there are these little trinkets that popped in, like a change of coordinators, or maybe a linebacker problem, maybe a safety problem. So how did you approach covering this team? What were you looking for? Well, I'm looking – my eyes are really dialed in on defense because, you know, usually, Mike, the, this time of year you often say, well, the defense is ahead of the offense. It doesn't need to be, like, as sharply run of a unit as opposed to offense where everything just has to work sort of methodically together. But that's not the case this year. Like, the offense – is ahead of the defense. The offense looks very efficient. Jalen Hurts knows where he's going with the football. It's another year in Nick Sirianni's system. So it's just like, you know, everything is orchestrated really well. But on the defensive side of the ball, it's really where my eyes are trained because they do have a new defensive coordinator. And Sean Desai has a good reputation, but he wasn't their first choice. And one of the reasons I think that they were uh, pissed off that that Jonathan Gannon uh, wasn't necessarily as forthright as he needed to be about that Arizona job is because they would have hired Vic Fangio if they knew that he was leaving. 
And, uh, you know, and they lost out on Fangio. And so they brought in Sean Desai. They lost both of their starting safeties. They lost both of their starting linebackers. And they lost um, one of their most productive players in Javon Hargrave along the defensive front. And so I've been looking at that, uh, trying to discern, you know, whether they're ready for prime time or not. Because the rest of the, you know, the offense certainly is. Uh, the opportunity is right there. But the defense has to hold up its end of the bargain. Let's talk about. I assume the weakest part of their defense or the most uncertain part, which is the linebacker situation. Um, and uh, Nicobe Dean hampered with an injury. Uh, and they went out and they, they acquired two more guys. Now, is, is what is that an indication of? Is, is that an indication of what you're seeing in practice that Nicobe's really not showing up or showing out? I don't think it's really reflective of Dean uh, so much as it is like who's going to be his running mate. And so there's been the, when Dean has been on the field and he's been hobbled by an ankle injury that kept him out of three or four practices, but when he's been on the field, he's been the constant. So I think the new additions, it's more reflective of the guys who are beside Nicobe Dean as opposed to Nicobe Dean himself. So what we've seen when he's been healthy and he has been limited by an ankle injury, so he missed three or four practices, Mike, but when he's been on the field, he's been the constant with the first team. And then it's been more of a rotating cast with Christian Ellis and Nicholas Morrow kind of rotating in that second spot. And one of the most eye-opening things is when Miles Jack gets signed on a Sunday, his first practice is on a Tuesday, and then we see him in with the first team that day. And then we hear after practice that he was considering becoming an electrician or a plumber. Um that he was, you know, just sitting on his couch watching or playing Call of Duty when he got the call. And now he's in there and he's getting these meaningful reps. And so that kind of tells you the state of the linebacker position about as well as anything else will. Like it is totally unsettled. They feel good about Dean, but he's unproven at this level. He, he was dynamite at Georgia, but he didn't really get a role on the defense last year as a rookie. And uh, and he's going to have to prove it. And certainly the guys next to him are, are question marks. That position just seems like it'd be an afterthought with this franchise. And I, and I mean, I guess I, they, uh, they know what they're doing, but I, it's kind of weird how they just kind of slog through the linebacker. Ah, I'll take care of itself, you know, whatever, whatever. I, I don't know. In this NFL, is that the right philosophy? Generally speaking, but I think they take it to an extreme. And so when you're roster building and they put the emphasis on the defensive front and then it's on the cornerbacks and then safeties and then linebacker, I mean, it's it's in that order. And you see year after year that they're always the lowest in allocated dollars to the linebacker spot. And so, you know, I mean, they had they had a really good year until the very end last year defensively. And, and that's how they've been kind of living. And I think it's generally right. But you, if you take anything to an extreme, it's not a good thing. And that, that includes at linebacker. And, you know, last year, uh, you know, TJ Edwards was pretty good for this team. And at safety, CJ Gardner-Johnson was pretty critical to them and, and led the team and led the league in interceptions despite missing five games. And I don't know that they've adequately replaced, you know, either of those spots, honestly. Let's look now at the other position, which is uh, safety. And Blankenship's had a solid camp from uh, all indications, so he looks like he's cemented in there. The other safety is an interesting position. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the, the kid from Illinois. Uh, uh, you know, he, he looks like he makes some plays. He looks like he's wild and all over the place. And I don't know that a great team can afford that, but w- what do you think of Brown? Uh, I like Brown a lot, and I know that the Eagles do too. Like when they when they got him in the draft, they felt really good about it, and you know, thinking that he could become a, a staple on this defense. And their opportunity is is right there. You know, Blankenship has been the one guy that's been consistently on the field with the first unit, but similar to linebacker, it's been a kind of a rotating cast around him. Terrell Edmonds. Kayvon Wallace, those guys have been mixing in, but very interesting coming off of what I thought was a pretty strong preseason game from Sidney Brown. The next practice out, which was yesterday against the the Cleveland Browns in that joint practice, Sidney Brown getting some first team reps. Uh, so he's he's starting to you know come up the rails here. Uh, you know, it looks like he's going to have an opportunity to get some playing time. I think the one concern there would be this defense believes so much in protecting from the the big play, but you know, this is an organizational thing. Obviously you saw that a lot with Gannon. So the safeties play back, they're conservative. Brown doesn't have that conservative bone in his body. And so how does that all mesh 
is something I'm really curious about. But in terms of ability, in terms of like a guy that you look at and like, yes, that's a safety. It's Sidney Brown. So I'm, I'm curious to see how his play you know, continues to increase as we get closer to the regular season. Talking to Tim McMahon as he covers Eagles for ESPN.com. And uh, uh, Tim, let's stay with the with the defensive backfield. Now the, the corners, we don't worry about the starters. Uh, and uh, Job has played well, and they like McPherson. Uh, and then you get Maddox in there. So that's five. Would, would they carry six? And if so, if they won't, uh, is, is Clay Ringo in danger of being cut? Because he was a pretty premium pick as well. Yeah, I don't know that they would part with Ringo. I mean, you can make the case that Rex, uh, especially what you saw with the the pick six and the number of uh, PBUs that he had, yeah, Eli Ricks, yeah, yes. that that he had in the uh, you know the preseason opener against Baltimore. That all right, well maybe maybe they need to take a closer look at him. But I would say like just looking at the generally the depth chart that they roll out there and seeing the ability of Keely Ringo, like he looks like somebody might that like belongs on the Legion of Boom. He's just like, he's built um, like this, this big, strong corner that has a lot of upside. And so I, I think that Ringo would make it over Ricks. And then you, you just kind of hope that maybe you can get him on the practice squad. All right. Uh, we haven't talked about, well, uh, we have talked about it because he played one play and he dazzled on the one play. And you know, there's such a dearth of, of exciting stories to write about that uh, Jalen Carter you know, it gets a lot, a lot of hype for the one play. Yeah. So tell, tell me about that whole defensive line uh, organization and rotation that they have going right now in your eyes. That was a heck of a play. <laughs> that, was, that was a play. Uh, in fact, Fletcher Cox talked about that afterwards. He and Jalen Carter had a conversation. And Carter beat the guards so cleanly that he thought it was a screen. Like, that's how quickly he got into the backfield. He's like, wait, what's going on here? That's, that's how easy it worked that he made it. And it, it shows, you know, what we know about him, that he's he's got tremendous athleticism and ability, and it's never been about that. He was, you know, the consensus best prospect that was coming out of that draft. And it was just a matter of, like, you know, we know that the, the backstory and the off-field stuff and, you know, would he be able to put it all together? And that remains to be seen. Uh, but, you know, the way that he's flashed, you know, there's no denying that if he puts together, he can be a star, you know? And very early on, he can, he can make an impact. And so basically what we see from that rotation, it's been Fletcher Cox and Jordan Davis as the, as the starting tackles. And then you have Milton Williams that rotates in and we're starting to see more Jalen Carter getting looks with the first team. So I think he's going to be a big part of this rotation very early. We saw him even against the Browns in that first joint practice, him lining up outside a little bit. So they're starting to move him around, see the type of different uh, piece chess pieces that they can use here. And if he keeps on this trajectory, like he could have, you know, he wants to be the defensive rookie of the year. And, you know, he's got that ability. Uh, all right. Nolan Smith, um, buzz early. And then, you know, it's kind of tailed off a little bit. What did you see in the joint practice with the Browns? Yeah. So Nolan Smith is the guy that you would expect to flash in a training camp setting because he is so fast coming around that edge that especially when, when the guys are in shorts and, and shells, you know, he's going to stand out among them. And then the, the big question is, since he's got a kind of a, a leaner frame, is that once you get into the pads, you know, is he going to have a second move that he can get around the edge with and, and beat, a, beat an offensive tackle? So that's something that he's going to continue to work on. But the buzz around him has been, has been really good. People have been calling him kind of like a junior Hassan Reddick, and he's got that look about him. Every time that he goes up against Lane Johnson is a learning experience for him. And, and Johnson, like he does for most guys, he just swallows him up. And But afterwards, you know, teaches him up. So, you know, why don't you try this move and why don't you try that? And so it's a little bit of a work in progress, but um, there is also some promise there with Nolan Smith. He needs to add a little bit to his arsenal, but, but I think he's going to be part of the rotation as well. Yeah, I don't know if there's much to talk about offensively, uh, except maybe running back rotation at this point. They're so deep there. Um, and, and DeAndre Swift, uh, you know, I, I thought he was just a tremendous acquisition to, to make splash plays. Um, so what are you seeing offensively right now? Well, that's the first time on an unofficial depth chart I ever saw five running backs all listed with the first team. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what is this? Um, you know, and that – that goes to show that it is a, a fluid situation. That's the way that Jamal Singleton, the running backs coach, called it. He said it's very fluid right now. But we're starting to see as we move a little bit closer that there's, you know, the three that stand out ab above the rest of them, and that's Kenny Gainwell and it's DeAndre Swift, and, and that's Rashad Penny. 
And I don't know that you're ever going to be able to really nail down like this guy's going to get the bulk of the carries in this given week. I think it'll kind of change as, as the matchups change throughout the week. I don't, there's not going to be that pure number one like there was with Miles Sanders or like you'll find in other organizations around the league here, Mike. But Swift is a guy that's going to be on the field a lot because how can't you like the different mismatches that he gives you? And we've seen, seen him line up all over the field. He motions into the slot. He goes out and spreads out wide. Sometimes it's for a quick bubble screen. Sometimes that's for him to, you know, for a fly pattern down the field. We've seen Jalen Hurts, you know, look over to his left, see DeAndre Swift lined up outside opposite a linebacker, check the play, and then, you know, and then hit Swift deep down down the sideline. That's something that I think they're pretty excited about. Uh, yeah, Miles Sanders, speaking of Miles Sanders, I don't know why it's just popped in my head, but I happened to be watching uh, a BTN and they had a, a Penn State football uh, moment or whatever it was. They beat Ohio State in 2016. And the kick returner in that game for Penn State was freshman Miles Sanders. How about that? How about that? How do you do? Now, the running back is some guy named Saquon, so the starter. So, I, uh, you know. Never heard of him. I didn't pay much attention to the, to the running back. Uh, all right. So, Timmy, <laughs> let's just go look at this overall situation because I, I, I'm trying to find a reason why the Eagles would not be the number one seed. Uh, and I know things can happen. It's all about injuries. But, I mean, who challenges them? I mean, the 49ers are a good team, and they have an axe to grind here. But their quarterback situation is really – kind of up in the air. So like realistically, what do you see here with the Eagles? How good are they? Where, where did they stand in the power rankings? I mean, I go through the same process as you trying to look for the teams that could unseat them. We know, we know the NFL is, you know, you can't pin it down. You think, you know, and then, and then something happens, but you know, just looking at it right now, like at the starting line or just before the starting line, you know, they're the favorite in the NFC. I mean, they, they just are. Dallas is a talented team. So it's like, it's Dallas and it's San Francisco as the obvious competitors for, for the Eagles this year. But we've kind of seen the song and dance from Dallas before. They, you know, they get a lot of hype. They have a lot of talent. They haven't always been able to put it together. And so it's kind of like, don't believe it until you see it type of thing. And San Francisco, it's just, you know, the, the quarterback matchup uh, between what they have and, you know, Brock Purdy had a nice rookie year, but between Purdy and Hertz, you know, gives, gives the Eagles a pretty clear, advantage in there you know there's don't be a team that surprises whether that's Detroit you know was loaded up with some talent there's always one like I like Justin Fields so maybe he he carries Chicago further than people are expecting them to there's there's always one team that you you don't necessarily peg that that rises up but the Eagles are in, in a great spot and uh yeah should be considered the favorites in the NFC all right Timmy, always a pleasure to uh, to touch base with you, and I know uh, your busy season is coming up, so hopefully we can get you down the road a little bit, talk about some Eagle football. Thanks for coming on, brother. Good to see you. I would love it. Good to see you guys. Take care. It's the Mike Nussanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks, Tim McManus, for coming on. Talk Philadelphia Eagles. It is now time for Mike Unleashed. We do Mike Unleashed every podcast here on the Mike Nussanelli Podcast. So let's start. We haven't even talked about him yet. Let's start with the Phillies. All right, the Phillies, they lose two of three of the Twins. But the big thing over the weekend were the reunions. It's always nice when they have the reunions. And they, they broadcast from the lounge and they bring some people in. Now, the last time they did this was it was a very rude Pete Rose who embarrassed everybody with his bawdiness. So uh, Pete was not part of this one. Uh, but interestingly enough... Um, Two guys were, were, well, one was it and one was. So it was the 83 team and 93 team reunion. Larry Anderson was a member of both, which was nice. He threw out the first pitch. The first thing I noticed about the reunion people that came back was the 93 team, no Lenny Dykstra, but Kurt Schilling. Now, I immediately thought that the Phillies, with that choice, had put a one nutbag limit on the whole proceeding. So they couldn't have two nutbags. They only could have one. And Lenny was left out this year and Schilling was invited. So so there you go. But but it's always a nice touch when the Phillies bring back guys. Now Juan Samwell was there from the from the 83 team. And then of course you get the usual suspects. Um, you know, Wes Chamberlain and, and Tony Longmire uh, always come back for the 
it's, it's really interesting that those guys are Steve Jeltz always comes back. Like guys that they just Every want to time you say West Chamberlain's name, I think of their story. They, they, yeah, they just want to be part of something, right? They really weren't that significant a piece, but they, they like to come back for it. Mickey Mordini, of course was there. And, um, uh, who, who else was there? Uh, 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 uh Mike Lieberthal, uh, was, was back there, you know, like, <laughs> guys, it's, it's nice to see those guys every now and then the, the reunion was nice for the Philly fans like that kind of thing where the Phillies uh, landed at this point. I'm not worried about them whatsoever. They lost two to three the twins. Big deal. They are still the top wild card team. They're not going to beat the, I had a friend of mine say, Hey, I'm telling you, they're going to go on a rally. They're going to win the division. They're not going to win the division. The Braves would have to lose games. The Braves aren't going to lose that many games for the Phillies to win the division. So, uh, Phillies reunion, nice touch. Again, uh, congratulations to the Phillies. Very heady to, to impose a one nutbag limit uh, on uh, on bringing back some guys. So, I, uh, uh, nice work by the Phils and their staff for that. Uh, all right. So, the second thing I want to talk about is uh, the rage against the umpires. Now, now, my producer Darren really has uh, he he takes a fit with, uh, with these umpires. Now, now there was a young umpire that made a couple of bad calls on balls and strikes and uh, forced Alec Bohm to go ballistic, or he slammed his bat, and then uh, he got fined for that. They pointed to him, that's a fine, and then he slammed his helmet, and then that's an ejection. So Alec Bohm goes out, and and of course uh, it was a bad pitch. If you look at it, we have the benefit of a box. The umpires do not have the benefit of a box, but. I, the umpires looking at that ball in real time where they see the flight of the ball and maybe their eyes see across the, the edge of the plate before it lands outside. I mean, I, I the balls and strikes to me have always like I've always I said it years ago that it should be that the technology that tennis uses, that there should be an electronic box that's set for eat the height of each player. And then you don't have the problem. Now, my the problem there is where's the home plate umpire stand? Because he still has to make calls and plays at the plate. Uh, but that would eliminate the whole situation. You wouldn't have any arguments at all. But I always think umpires get, get a, I hate them, but I always think they get a raw deal uh, from, uh, from fans because they're in live time and they're looking at things like that. And calls usually even out uh, for most teams. So, Darren, what is your main beef about umpires? Well, f- well first of all, with the, if, even if they were to go do, do the system that you mentioned or robo-umps, the umpire's still got to be here to actually make the call. It's not like there's going to, uh, you know, just a, a sign's going to go up. So, but I just, it drives me bananas when the calls are so egregiously bad and it's more than one from the same up. And it's always like, there's only four or five guys and it's always these guys. And I know they're learning, go learn in double A. I mean, there's, there's guys throwing 90 in double A and triple A go learn down there. Angel Hernandez is the one name that everybody talks about, but it's the same four or five guys. And they're, and they're usually young. Hernandez is not, but it's just when they're egregiously bad like that. And it's over the course of a game. Every ump blows a call, and I don't want robo-umps. I like the fact I don't want to take the human element out of it. It's what part of the game that makes it great. It's just when they're that bad. I mean, these they were awful calls, right? For balls and strike, balls and strikes take the human element. Who cares? Take the human element out for balls and strike. What do you want the human element behind a plate for? There's no reason for it. The only reason you have to have the human element is to make calls at the plate. So there's got to be an umpire on standby. There's got to be an umpire lurking. No, I'm not telling you to get rid of them. I'm just saying it's just when they're – if they have such a bad track record – I'm telling you to get rid of them. I'm telling you to get rid of the home plate umpire. This way you won't have any arguments. No, no, no. I don't want to get rid of them. Why? I don't want to get why rid don't of you, them. I, like why I said, don't you want to get rid of them? five umps. Well, why? What's the point of the human element at, for balls and strikes? Because I like having the human element. It's part of the game. It's the game I grew up in. That's how it is. Sometimes that, Mike, who cares the game you grew up in? The game you grew up in also didn't have a ghost runner at second base at the, uh, or, or or bigger base. It, 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 it's evolving game. I don't like the ghost runner either. It's an evolving game. You don't need the human element for balls and strikes. You need the human element to call guys at safe or out at first base and second base and third base. If it was every umpire and it was a league wide problem, I would say, yeah, you're right. But the, again, it's only it's always the same three or four guys. They're the they just should not be behind the plate. 
They're not ready for it. <laughs> the only, but see, here's the thing. The only reason we get on those umpires is because we have that box. Now that's on true. TV. I that's agree with you. That's the only reason. That might be the solution. The box get rid of the box. More heat on them. You know, maybe that's right. the answer. Uh, all right. So uh, let's continue with the baseball conversation because last week I was glued. I was at the shore. It was a Friday afternoon. It was a nice beach day, but I was compelled to watch the Little League World Series because the media team, the team in my in my county here. Uh, no, that's actually Delaware County. I'm not Delaware County. I'm on the edge of Delaware County. Uh, so media is playing Washington D.C. This is a team they waxed 16 to three in a, in a previous game in the tournament. I look at it; it's, it's nothing, nothing with two great pitchers on the hill. The media pitcher runs out of pitches, so they put another guy in. The other guy stays in there. Media doesn't have a hit. It goes to extra innings. It's zero zero, and there's a guy on second base, and the kid. It's a home run, a walk-off home run, a left-handed redhead kid to send media to Williams for. What a dramatic moment. Congratulations to those kids. Now, they play Friday, I believe, or is it Thursday? It might be Thursday at 7 o'clock. They play a team from Texas. I saw that team in Texas. They're good. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that media will not be the favorite in that game. Well, let's root those kids on, man. The media Little League team. I hope a Pennsylvania team can win the Little League World Series. All right. Uh, let's move on to the NBA Hall of Fame ceremonies this weekend. What a class was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Let me, do, let me just read the, not, the names of the people who were inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. Uh, oh, my God. I can't. My, my phone. All right, there it is. Okay, Dwayne Wade, Dirk Nowitzki, Pal Gasol, Tony Parker, Greg Popovich, Becky Hammond, a couple media guys. That's a pretty strong class. But what stood out for me is that Dwayne Wade selected as the man to present him for the Hall of Fame entry, Allen Iverson. AI was the guy that Dwayne Wade wanted to present him. Before we got to that, Dwayne Wade got to the podium and talked about Allen Iverson. And I want you people to hear that. If you didn't hear it, this is Dwayne. Allen Iverson is sitting to his right on a chair, and Dwayne Wade speaks eloquently about the impact of Allen Iverson, and here it is. As I reflect on my own destiny and the impact that my heroes have had on my life, I'm reminded that our heroes are not always perfect. Instead, they possess a relatability that makes them touchable and real. When anyone speaks about Allen Iverson, that's exactly what they say. He's real. So AI, I need you to know this. I watched you with all because I saw a reflection of myself in you. The way you played the game was exciting and fearless. It didn't matter who they put in front of you. They wasn't gonna stop you. Shit, I know, I tried. <laughs> it didn't matter what they said about you because they couldn't measure the size of your heart. Your authenticity and unapologetic attitude it resonated with me. Your swagger, unique style for rocking do-rags, braids, the baggy shorts, to the untucked jerseys, the earrings, the chains, the throwback jerseys, it all combined to create an image that broke the mold. You challenged conventional norms and became the poster child for individuality and self-expression, inspiring countless individuals to embrace their own uniqueness. You brought hope to those who grew up with limited resources. You showed us that success and greatness were attainable even in the face of adversity. Your struggles made your accomplishments that much more remarkable. AI, you are a living, breathing reminder that redemption and growth are possible. You inspired a generation, my damn self included, to believe that coming from nothing was not a limitation, but motivation. I wore an arm sleeve throughout my career because AI did.
I respectfully wore the number three throughout my college and NBA career to represent the love and the respect that I have for this man. So from the bottom of my heart, you are the culture, and we love you, and we thank you, Allen Iverson. All righty. So there you go. That was, that was touching, man. If, I, if I'm Allen Iverson, I almost have tears out of my coming out of my eyes with that. I almost had tears, and I'm not Allen Iverson. All right, let's move on to a little uh, frivolity here, a little humor. For some reason, I got compelled to rewatch The Sopranos Season 3. A lot of people say that season three is the best season. I don't know what it is. Season three in The Wire was also the best season. I think it's uh, uh, like two seasons in, the writers really feel themselves and they, and they expand the storyline and they, they get really creative with it and deep with it. Um, there were two great villains in The Sopranos for me always. I liked them both. Richie Preel in season two and, and Ralph Cifaretto in season three, who just blows every villain out of the water. What a creep. What a prick. All right. So uh, in that in that season, perhaps the best episode of The Sopranos is season three, episode number 11. Darren, do you remember what that was? Uh, no, not the top of my head. Season three, episode 11 was the Pine Barrens episode. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Okay, so now they're they're chasing the the Russian um, the, the ex commando uh, who is a friend of Slava's who they do a lot of business with, right? And and of course they lose him. And he escapes them into the Pine Barrens in the snowy uh, uh, terrain, and they think they shot him in the head, but they really don't know. But they get lost in in the, in the woods. So they're trying to communicate with Tony Soprano. And the, the connection of the cell phone is they're in the Pine Barrens and it's, it's uh, dropping off and they can't really hear what Tony's saying. So Tony is trying to explain to them that this guy that they think is a nobody is a somebody. And what he says to them is this guy was a commando in the Chechen rebel army. Uh, he, or no, in, in the army that put, that put down the Chechens, he killed 16 Chechens. And he was a member of the interior minister, the Russian interior minister, uh, ministry. So, uh, Pauly, here's what. <laughs> He's an interior decorator. <laughs> Paul, Paul, Pauly hears, oh my God, this guy killed 16 Czechoslovakians. And, and he was an interior decorator. And Christopher says, he was an interior decorator. His place looked like shit. <laughs> It was one of the greatest really episodes is. ever. <laughs> I rewatched it last night. I'm telling you, that season is fantastic. So anyway, uh, let's end uh, Mike Unleashed with a little Sopranos reference. Uh, all right, it is time for my thought of the day. My thought of the day, a lot of my thoughts of the day come with uh, me making purchases, especially purchases at a grocery store. Now, at my grocery store, when you check out, they say, would you like to donate the change to whatever charity they got going at that point? And I need to ask people, and again, you can, you can email. I love feedback on this. And you can email me, mike at mikemiss.com. What is the cutoff point for you to round off your change to donate to charity at a grocery store? Darren? Uh, it's less than a dollar. I don't have a cutoff point. I don't always do it. To me, I see. I have a cut. I have a cutoff point. <laughs> yes. guess. Can I guess? I so have an automatic cutoff. Fifty cents because you want the quarters back, like no less. Right? So forty-nine cents. I'm guessing. Well, I quarters. What do you well, pay with cash? You don't pay with cash. <laughs> I don't always you get, pay with cash. You get quarters back in a slot machine. Well, quarters. Cash. Yeah. No. The cutoff to me is fifty cents. If it's 50 or above, I don't donate. If it's less than 50 cents, I'll donate. Now, I don't know. Does that make me cheap? Does that make me generous? Like what? Because a lot of people won't donate at all. But as long as I got less than 50 cents, I go, well, you know what? Less than 50 uh, well, first cents. of all, I hit it right on a number. But uh, <laughs> oh my guess. But no, that's fair. Well, I, I you, was it difficult to hit it right in the middle? My reasoning was a little skewed. <laughs> well, Ar Ar Archimedes had to figure that out. 
no, I think it's fair. I mean, I, I don't always do it. I feel bad. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes I don't. Usually, if it's- yeah, sometimes I do it. Sometimes I don't. I will always do it. If it's under 50 cents, I will always not do it. It's just to make, just to make my it's life fair easy. to me. It doesn't really, it's less than a dollar. So I'm not making a decision based on how much change there is. Okay. All right. Here's the other question. Last question based on this note. You go into a sandwich shop. You order a sandwich. Every machine now is programmed. No tip, 15% tip, 20% tip, 25% tip. What do you do at a takeout shop where the person who doesn't even make the sandwich isn't bringing it to you? It's the person at the counter. Yeah, see, there's a place in my town that that does that does it for. Now they make a great sandwich, uh, Nene Market, but um, I don't do that because I'm because I have family in the in the in that business, and they're paying these these kids make like fifteen bucks an hour now. It's not bad. So I don't know. I'm so not you don't tip. That. No, not for you certain. Pre- not for you press the, the no tip. I, I hit the no tip. <laughs> And I'm not a cheap guy. You know that. I'm always the first one to buy around. For you pressing the no tip, you're cheap. That means you can go 10% for crying out loud. Go 10% at the very least. She picks the sandwich. I get it. 10% going to kill you? I'm usually buying a few sandwiches. Oh, my God. You're a (laughs) We have just learned a little bit about Darren. Producer Darren. Not even a 10% tip he'll lay down. All right, that'll uh, do it for my thoughts. Set me up. Let's (laughs) let's end it. This uh, podcast was brought to you by the great people at Bet Rivers. Again, to email me, it's mike at mikemiss.com. And you can email me with a sound off. Any kind of intriguing email you send me, you're going to be eligible for a hat, which I announce on my Friday blog on my website, which is mikemiss.com. We've given out a couple of great hats. We're wearing them here. You you can't see it because it's not on video yet. I swear this is the longest road to video ever. But we are going to get it done. We are going to be on video by the next couple of weeks, I promise. Uh, and, of course, if you want a little personal shout-out, there's an organization out there called Cameo, uh, an app. Download the app Cameo. Stick my name in there. I'll give you a personal shout-out uh, for any occasion. Wedding, graduation, going to college, fantasy football league, whatever it is. I'll announce your fantasy football league. Go to Cameo.com and stick my name in there, all right? Everybody have a great rest of the day. We will talk to you with a new fresh podcast coming up on Thursday right here uh, on Bet Rivers, uh, the Mike Bessinelli podcast. See you later, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mike Bessinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.